0: no taxation without representation 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation no representation in the capital of this nation 200 years of exploitation Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district
1: were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock. We give the people the right to vote. Hello, and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour long grassroots talk show, which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Marilia Duffels, and together, we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. So feel free to call in at 888-627-6008, or you can Skype your questions to us at PBS Radio. Tonight, we have a a very interesting guest, uh, Frank Vogel. Mr. Vogel is the co-founder of two leading international NGOs fighting corruption, Transparency International and the Partnership for Transparency Fund. He teaches at Georgetown University writes regular blog articles on corruption for the globalists, and lectures extensively. He is a specialist in international economics and finance with more than 50 years of experience as an international journalist, director of information and public affairs at the World Bank, and president and CEO of Vogel Communications. Mr. Vogel is the author of seven books, including his latest, which we can't wait to talk to him about the enablers, how the West supports kleptocrats and corruption, endangering our democracy. Thanks so much for being with us tonight, Mr. Vogel, and welcome to the show. It's a great honor.
2: It's wonderful to be with both of you, and thank you so much for having me.
1: So can we start at the top? Because uh, I've always been foggy on this, and I know a bunch of our listeners Uh, Probably are, too. What exactly is a kleptocrat? The world has maybe 100 countries
2: today where the governments, the people at the very top of the governments, are stealing from their people. They're stealing their taxes. They're stealing government money through public procurement contracts. They are stealing from state-owned enterprises they're crooks, they're corrupt and when they head governments like Vladimir Putin does then we call
1: them kleptocrats and so is there a level at which you become a kleptocrat you know because you saying politicians are stealing money, I don't think that's shocking anybody but is there a level, is there a difference between the the local councilmen that that Steers contracts to his buddies, and these guys—is it, is it just a matter of the amount of money that they're stealing, or, or you know, what what? I think uh, it. I think it's part of the
2: system. Uh, when we talk about authoritarian governments, the real hallmark of those governments is that the people at the very top put themselves above the law. They appoint the justices, they appoint the law enforcement officers, and they create a situation where they basically have impunity, immunity from prosecution, and then they steal. And we're talking about stealing very large amounts of money. Those kinds of people, for me, whether it's the president of uh, Belarus, the president of Russia the president of Egypt. We could go on down the line. These are people who are stealing enormous amount of sums. In other words, they're abusing their office for their personal gain on a huge scale without any fear of uh, unless there's a revolution, without any fear of being prosecuted.
1: Really, do you have a A question.
3: Well, I just want to say very quickly um, that you have so much incredible information to impart. And your latest book is amazing. I have not read it, but it's been reviewed and it was reviewed in this weekend's FT. It's a fabulous review and I intend to read it. So I would like to keep my questions to a, a minimum because you do have so much to say. And I think it's very important that people know as much as they can from you. But I will mention because you do have the um, Zuzana Foundation and it relates to classical music in the Czech Republic. I used to live in Prague, my husband and I did, and I've loved Wonderful. and followed yeah, followed classical music, um, and I was surprised to see that Tchaikovsky has an opera called Oprichnik, and <laughs> I I had no idea, and I and Tchaikovsky is one of my favorites, and um, I looked it up, and it was a designation given to a member of the Oprichnina, which was a bodyguard corps established by Tsar Ivan the Terrible to govern a division of Russia. But basically, the motivating purpose for their existence of these Oprichniki was to oppress people or groups opposed to the Tsar. And it just goes to show you, and this is dating back to the 1500s, that this is time immemorial been in existence. And to this day, surprisingly, in 2022. But I thought it was very interesting that Tchaikovsky actually wrote an opera based on the <laughs> Oprichniks set in <laughs> Ivan the Terrible's court, um, and it, it is what Russia is today. But anyway, I just wanted to mention but you that know, because
2: you, you know you make such a good point, and I like to just say one little thing. I once did a, a TV program a few years ago, and there was mm-hmm. a Russian on the on, there was a Russian journalist on the panel and I happened to mention corruption, and he said, oh, we have a thousand-year history of corruption in Russia. (laughs) And, and, you know, that's to your point. But the point is, there's nothing new, in a sense, about Mm. governments stealing from their people. There's nothing new about autocrats. But what is new is the globalization of the whole process. That enormous amounts of money, Stolen, for example, in Russia, by Putin and by the people immediately around him, find their way into apartments in Manhattan, into mm. yachts in the south of France, and mm. into huge amounts of investments in our security markets.
3: Well, huge. indeed, yeah, and even know- um, oh, sorry. oh, that's all right. Um One of who's known as one of Putin's favorite oligarchs i'm sure you're very familiar with him alisher if i'm pronouncing it right usmanov he invested in apple and uh, facebook more than 900 millions way back dollars in way back in 2009 when zuckerberg was having trouble getting funds in the middle of that fin- financial crisis and it, it's just amazing they have their claws in everything it's not just you know what what we sort of see well, it, but it, it,
2: it's it's the system, and I think it's important for people to quite understand what happened. Mm-hmm. We, in the era of the Cold War, under the communist system, all enterprises were owned by the state. When communism collapsed, the West, our government, the World Bank, the International Money Fund, USAID, everybody else said, mm-hmm. OK, here's a chance to build capitalism in the former communist countries. And one of the things you have to do is to privatize all those state-owned enterprises. So the issue was many very clever officials in the Russian government said, OK, we'll organize the privatization. And of course, what happened? They stole the companies. Mm-hmm. Together with, together literally with mafia gangsters, they got control of the privatization process. So one of them got a big oil company, another a natural gas company, another uh, got control of the railways, another got control of the biggest nickel company in the world, Norelsk. And these people got their hands, therefore, on enormously valuable assets without ever working for it. And they used that as the basis to build their empires and mm. their fortunes. And Vladimir Putin did a deal with them which was very simple. He said, after he came into power in 22 years ago, he said, I won't do anything to damage your business. In fact, I'll help you to grow your businesses. So long as if ever I want any favors from any of you tycoons, who we now call oligarchs, then you will be helpful to me. And that has been the deal. And they have been his, basically, his yes-men doing whatever favors he wants, such as, for example, financing efforts to undermine our elections in 2016 and in mm. 2020.
0: Mm. And
2: that's the hold that he has on them. And in turn, the deal, the quid pro quo is that they can build their businesses without any fear uh, of the state interfering. And so they become incredibly
1: wealthy.
0: Mm.
1: Well, can let's yeah, this is the way the mafia does business, is it not? I remember that great scene from The Godfather where the Godfather does a favor for somebody, and they say to him, uh, "He may never ask you for a favor, but if he asks you for a favor, you better do it." And 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 that you know we had a politician here in Washington named uh, Marion Barry who who <laughs> enabled many of his friends, right? Enabled many of his friends. He never stole a dime. He never stole a dime, and the and the government went after him for years, and they couldn't catch him because they didn't realize that that was the arrangement he had. He opened the door for for lots of his friends, uh, and 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 um, you know, uh, so therein lies the corruption. But let me but ask you. But if, but but, but you ahead. know,
2: Senator, there is one hugely important point here. None of these oligarchs could really build their empires unless they also build foreign business relationships outside of Russia. And they have built those relationships with American enterprises, with many, many European enterprises, including banks. And not all of those relationships have been legal. And they have managed to get out a huge amount of dirty money from the Russian people into our investments and and that's an element to this whole uh, horrible situation over Ukraine that many people, I think, don't adequately understand, but I think is important.
1: Mm-hmm. So now that we're seizing, it seems to me that we're seizing property, like I see in the news, this $600 million yacht. I don't know how you spend $600 million on a single boat, but... I, I understand. It has, <laughs> I understand it has an indoor pool. I mean that—that that really is the two ultimate. Two pools, of, Mike.
3: Quote,
1: quote, quote, to have an indoor pool, but two. But, oh, is that right? I've, yes. I've, I've got. I've got that in my house. We call them bathtubs. But anyway, <laughs> uh, uh, now that we're seasoning that property, why weren't we seasoning it earlier? Right. Well, this is. First of all, these yachts
2: and. These are the symbols of excess. Uh, They don't go to the core of the fortunes of these people because, Mm -hmm. you know, frankly, they'll buy another yacht someday. But these are the symbols of excess. And it's very good that the public sees these yachts and sees how absurd Mm. it is that these people are. You you know, if we just said that the government was seizing their bank accounts, that would somehow not have the same visual impact. But Mm. if we go deeper... And answer your question, I mean, the reason I wrote this book, frankly, was because I I believe we, and I'm talking about Western governments now, have been far, far too gentle for far too long with the whole money laundering, whole foreign corruption game that is played out, which involves trillions of dollars today. I mean, we are Mm. talking staggering amounts. We're talking maybe two, two and a half percent of the total global GDP, total global economic output is through corruption. We've been far too gentle about this, and we haven't realized that our essential acceptance of it, to to a large extent, undermines our democracy and undermines Mm. our security. So it's not just a moralizing issue that it's wrong, but, which it is, but it also has direct consequences for our democracy and for our security. Mm. And we're seeing that right now in the most horrible
1: way in, in Ukraine. Well, do you think our government facilitates this? I mean, it seems to me that, the, you know, if you're talking about trillions of dollars, then there's an economic benefit. In that for the people that are laundering the money, as well as the people that are, you know, receiving benefit of that, uh, is, 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 does our government play a role in this? Or, well, it's
2: uh, play, it, yes, yeah, it sorry, does. It, 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 no, it does. I mean, it's the right question. And it does. Uh, there's no way that, you know, Mr. Putin or his oligarch friends have any idea how to invest in the U.S. stock market. They need people to help them, people who are really trained on Wall Street. They need to find ways to hide the fact that they are the true owners of these investments. So they need lawyers. They need Mm -hmm. auditors. They need financial accountants. They need real estate uh, people who can put them into the best property assets. All of these people, based on Wall Street, based in Miami, based in Toronto, Canada, based in uh, London and many other Financial centers these are the enablers of these incredibly um, rich oligarchs, not just Russian ones but Chinese and many others and the amount of enforcement of laws against their illegal operations because they're aiding and abetting money laundering the amount of enforcement resources that europe europe Western Europe, I'm talking about, and the United States has put out there is absolutely minimal. So there are, you know, there are more prosecutions by the U.S. Justice Department than all of the European counterpart authorities put together, and yet the number of prosecutions in the U.S. is very, very small. And so, one of the dramatic things that has happened in the last week is that President Biden has announced that the Justice Department is establishing a special inform- enforcement task force.
0: Mm-hmm. I
2: would argue they should have done that many years ago. But at least, this, at least they're starting to recognize that unless they beef up enforcement, we're not going to get anywhere. But I would, if I may, just take one more minute to explain another please. aspect of this. Please, please. The money must come through the banking system one way or another, and we have been far, far too lenient on the banks. Um, There have been an array of cases that the Justice Department has either settled or prosecuted involving very big money laundering and or big foreign corruption. When I say corruption, I mean the bribery of foreign government officials. And these have involved banks like Goldman Sachs, like Deutsche Bank, uh, like HSBC, and many other big, very, very big banks. And what has the punishment been? Usually the punishment has been a fine. It can be a large fine. But the chairman and CEOs of these companies have never, ever been punished. There has been no prosecution of these people at all. And... The same happened, if you remember, after the subprime crisis. None of the top bankers, those banks paid huge fines for fraud, but none of the chairman and CEOs of those banks were ever individually prosecuted. And so much of this abuse that I'm talking about with regards to money laundering and corruption, even when companies are uh, prosecuted, it ends up with a fine and It's not cynical, I believe, to say some of these institutions look at those fines as just the cost of doing business. That's wrong. Mm. There has to be a system in place that truly punishes those who aid and abet, fundamentally, people who are America's enemies.
3: It seems to me that it's, and, and I totally agree with you, of course, but it seems to me that from everything you say, and everything I've read about your, your incredible and, and wonderful and necessary work, that it's a huge crab pot. It's a pot full of crabs, and you try to pull one out. You can't just pull one out because they're all entangled. They're, their claws are all intertwined with each other, and that's the whole system. So how do you disentangle that? And how much of all this government protection – Is and politician protection, is because governments and politicians are welcoming the infusion of monies into their economies.
2: And how much is
3: it because these politicians are compromised?
2: Well, you've answered the question. In fact, Senator Brown, you're the expert here. I would defer to you. I think the problem fundamentally about our lack of adequate enforcement is money Mm -hmm. in politics. Mm -hmm. Uh, The last chapter of my new book deals precisely with that. It says, uh, if you look at how well connected, how well networked are the leading bankers in this country to the political establishments,
0: mm-hmm. if you look
2: at how well the real estate leadership is similarly networked, both with campaign contributions, with armies of lobbyists, and so on. And what, why are they so networked? And the answer is they want to influence the regulatory system. Mm. And clearly what they want is as little regulation and supervision as possible. Mm -hmm. They want the freedom to do whatever they like. And Mm -hmm. it's a constant battle. And I would argue that too much money in politics, particularly from the financial sector, has Mm. resulted in inadequate enforcement of laws and regulations. And, um, you know, it's quite amazing. Only this year, oh, actually in the last 12 months, has the U.S. passed a law that demands that owners of shell companies and offshore holding companies that own real estate or own precious art actually have to be identified. So if you wanted to open a company in, say, Delaware, you could do it in a way, under state law, that didn't demand your true name and address. In other words, it's harder in some cases to get a library card in Washington, D.C., than to create one of these companies in Delaware. That is absurd. And it provides all of the opportunity for the wrong people to hide stolen assets.
1: Well, I I couldn't agree with you more that Money in politics is just a horrible thing, and it really is at the root of corruption. And I used to be in charge of FEC compliance, bringing bringing uh, money into the, the our, our. I worked for the Democratic National Committee, and I can tell you they left so many loopholes in the law. You know, there's a law that says that you can't give more than. Uh, I think it is twenty five thousand dollars a year in combination to uh, uh, any political organization. Uh, I can't tell you how many times we've found ways around that law. You know, somebody sent us a million dollar check one time,
2: and we but found a know, way it, to use
1: it. You know, it goes, I mean, it, it, yeah, it go goes ahead. much further,
2: Senator. It goes further than that.
1: There's yeah.
2: one thing: the checks and the money. But in some cases, we find that very prominent people have been bought, put essentially become the representatives of these uh, kleptocrats and their, their hordes of oligarchs and other corrupt businessmen. For example, if you, just take the Paul Manafort case. Here he yeah. was on the payroll of the former leader of ukraine who in turn was a close buddy of putin's yanukovych a man who in the four years he was president stole more money faster than i think anybody in history maybe in excess of 20 billion dollars he bankrupted wow. ukraine paul manafort was on his payroll so uh, so was a law firm yes. up in new york so was the former president of Italy. So was the former chancellor of Austria. They were all part of the team to give the impression that Yanukovych, the gangster president of Ukraine, was actually a very decent fellow, and to build relationships with U.S. business, with U.S. finance, and with the U.S. Congress. And this is the insidious system whereby you have money in politics, but you also have these kinds of enablers. There are members of the British House of Lords, very respected, who actually are the front men for major companies in Britain that are really controlled by Russians. And the British government knows about it and it does nothing about it whatsoever. And in a couple of cases, some of these prominent Russians are major donors to the British Conservative Party. This is the insidious system Or, as Marilla said, the crabs, as it were, that are all around in this system, that needs to be opened up and broken up. And I think that this Ukraine crisis has finally forced many Western governments to ask themselves, can this system be sustained? If so, it will hurt us terribly. Or can we put our commercial interests to one side and really try and clean up this horrible mess of globalized corruption?
1: And it's very difficult to clean it up. Well, I'm and sure you have really pointed out. Go ahead.
3: And you Sorry. have people. So, um... Mr Volga you're saying that and it looks to me this way that the Liz Trusses and the and the the the, 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 the late leader of the Labour Party Keir Starmer it's just words out of the mouth the things they're saying to address this and the sanctions and everything
2: need, she, but they need but they need to act we we've had yes. wonderful rhetoric from Liz Truss and from Boris Johnson That's and the exactly government That's exactly what I'm saying it's all rhetoric so far, but so far the the Brits have actually been laggards. I, I've been very impressed how the Germans have tre- turned around very quickly. Uh, quite amazing after years of complicity. If you, if you ask me, with the Russians, um, the French are now tightening up. The, the what the US has done in the last couple of weeks is just amazing in terms of the number of sanctions imposed. The British have talked a lot, but so far, mm-hmm. London grad which is a term widely used for, yes. for, for London these days because there's so many Russians there, Grad remains Londongrad. The Russians are still there and even complaining about being harassed by the government.
1: Well, I, I heard political pundit after political pundit over the last couple of weeks, uh, Mr. Vogel, say this is the way, the only way, to get it, Vladimir Putin, do you believe that that we you know to 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 get to putin you got to take down the, the, the kleptocrats and the oligarchs
2: i think if if I may say so, I think some of the rhetoric is overly simple um, first of all, these oligarchs let 's say there are fifty of them, fifty truly uh, enormously wealthy people controlling state enterprises or getting vast government contracts who Putin calls together every few months to basically make sure that they understand that they are subject to his whims and that they better behave. Of those 50, there are probably half a dozen, no more, who are truly close to Putin. A few of them actually grew up with him. The so-called Rottenberg brothers, two brothers, grew up with Vladimir Putin. They went to school together. In middle school, they were in the judo team together. They've maintained very close relationships. And obviously, if they want to at any time, they can call up Putin on the phone. Alexei Miller is the chairman of Gazprom, the largest company in Russia. Uh, It is a company that, Western Europe is enormously dependent on for natural gas supplies. Alexei Miller is a very, very close old friend of Vladimir Putin's. Uh, now, the Rottenbergs, Miller, a few others, Mankel Potanin, who runs Norelsk, these people are very close to him. They can pick up the phone. They can probably tell him, uh, look, this is getting bad or it's not getting bad or so. But for many of these other kleptocrats, um, you know, they, they they are far more remote. I don't think they would have any influence on Putin at all. And I don't think he cares, frankly, if they lose a few billion dollars. Now, there's another approach which I think hasn't got enough attention. Some of these kleptocrats control very big companies. And quietly, I think, the U.S. and the European Union authorities have been looking closely at how they can stop the trading relationships of these very big companies. And some of these companies are, of course, controlled by these oligarchs. And so going after the oligarchs hurts a bit. But if you can stop some of these companies from their ability to export, then you are truly damaging the Russian economy. And you're also threatening the jobs, of course, and the employment of thousands of Russians. And there is, I believe, a lot of consideration going on uh, between the European Union and the U.S. as to which of these companies should be targeted, how best to target them. And uh, sure, why not target the oligarchs who control them? But I think Putin will be much more influenced when he sees there's heavy unemployment in Russia and when he sees the trade relationships are being Broken left, right, and center from the biggest companies in Russia, I think that hurts him much, much more than to, than the nice symbols of you know taking a few yachts from a few rich people.
1: does that make sense? Uh, yeah, it does make sense but but i I wonder you know there's such great disparity between these oligarchs and the and and the regular people of Russia. Why do why do Russians put up with this? Is is it because of what the first asked that there's a you know that there's a thousand years of corruption and they're just used to it and oppression well, and oppression? Yeah,
2: in all authoritarian states, uh, the government controls law enforcement, so whether the people like it or not. If the government decides not to enforce laws against uh oligarchs who've stolen lots of money or don't pay taxes, that's the way it's going to be. And we see it in so many countries. I think it's important for many people to understand that Russia is not an exception. Uh, if you th- think about it... um There are more journalists and civil society people in prison today in Egypt and in Turkey than in almost every other country of the world except uh, for China and Russia. So why? Because when people take to the streets to protest these crooks who are running the country and running the businesses as well, those people get locked up. And the investigative journalists get locked up and in some cases murdered. And uh, these are brutal regimes. And those who go out and protest publicly, and amazingly, there are so many of them, and we're seeing them even in the streets of Russia today, are taking enormous personal risk. What is the
3: sort of critical mass do you think that will take, that will be required to have sort of an overthrow or a revolution, um, like the French Revolution? I mean, it reaches, it gets to a point where people are so fed up. And to the extent that the visas and MasterCards and American Expresses are being, um, are withdrawing themselves from Russia, to what extent will that affect the economy such that there will be such misery in 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 the Russian population, these poor people. I feel sorry for them too. Um, where do you think that the, the point will be, where there will actually be, a, you know, a total revolution?
2: Well, <laughs> I've no idea. It, I I can only tell you that uh, it is very hard to organize.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
2: uh, the government is acutely aware of the risks. We. We saw in Belarus a year and a half ago how people seeing that the election was rigged by President Lukashenko, a man who has been in power since 1994, a close buddy of Vladimir Putin's, uh, the worst kind of autocrat. When he rigged the election, tens of thousands of people in the country took to the streets, Lukashenko had to ask Putin to send in Russian troops to help him to put down the protests. And even though there was vast protests, and there are still people in Belarus willing to protest, uh, Lukashenko survived. So it is very hard to organize these protests today. Uh, the countries where it's been most effective have been the countries where people have been able to use social media effectively to organise in civil society, but Russia has, like China, has really clamped down on social media, especially in the last two weeks. So I'd, I have no predictions there. I, you know, economic hardship will certainly hit Putin. Uh, a fall in the econ- economic, the size of the economy by say 20 percent in the next year, would have enormous impact on the lives of the Russian people.
0: Right. Whether
2: any of that influences the immediate coterie around Putin and Putin himself, I have no idea. I have no idea what this man, uh, what his values are, what his priorities are. And I think uh, it may very well be that the course of the war in Ukraine, and especially if it goes wrong from the Russian point of view, mm-hmm may be more damaging to his support in the Kremlin from military and intelligence leaders than anything that would happen to the oligarchs would have an effect on him. But I don't know. Uh, and it's very early days, of course. We're only mm-hmm. eight days into this horrible war.
1: Yeah. So what benefit? Is there any benefit to this invasion for the oligarchs, for the kleptocrats, is this is just their... Going along with it is just their payoff to Putin. I mean, do, is there any advantage to them? I would think that it would be if I was a businessman in the Soviet Union. I think the. I mean, I'm sorry, in Russia, I'm, I'm, you know, it shows how old I am. In Russia, I wouldn't wanna. I wouldn't wanna invade my neighbor. It'd be bad for business. Is it? Of course, or, of course, you're right. But you know.
2: We have to think about something else. The wealthiest Russians have had a lot of time over the years to think how best to invest their money around the world secretly. Uh, We're not going to be able to seize a high percentage of the real investment assets of these oligarchs. We We might make life a little bit more difficult for them, and for their families, but they are so wealthy that they'll take the hard knocks. A lot of middle-class Russians will be truly, and even upper-middle-class Russians, will be hit very, very hard by the decline in the value of the ruble, by the absolutely catastrophic decline in the value of corporate shares on the Russian stock exchange, and I should add the London Stock Exchange, because there's something like 30-plus uh, ca- Russian companies listed on the London Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. But I don't think, you know, I think the the oligarchs themselves have taken, gone to great lengths over many years to protect their financial interests. They'll be not hard, but this isn't, an sanctions will not be a knockout blow for most of them. And, of course, they would love peace because they've done so well in in a peaceful environment. Uh, they've been buying up assets, left, right, and center and buying prestige. I mean, Mr. Potanin, this pal of Putin's, this head of Norelsk, the third biggest company in Russia, for the last 20 years, he's been on the board of the Guggenheim Museum in New York, and he loves the prestige. Mm. Uh, in fact, he's the chief sponsor of a wonderful art show that's just opened at the Guggenheim, which is a retrospective of the art of Kandinsky. And poor Mr. Potanin, don't you feel sorry for him? Poor Mr. Potanin. The (laughs) the war started, he's got sanctioned, and he had to resign from the Guggenheim board. These oligarchs have got themselves in many countries in the West into positions of influence and establishment that makes it very, very hard to make their lives too uncomfortable.
1: Well, if you go back to the original, you know the, the the thing that Marilly was talking about with the crabs in the in the bucket. Don't we need an international? Don't we need international agreements to make this work? I mean, if the if the Americans won't wash my money, won't the Brits or the Or the Swiss, or the people in the Cayman Islands. I mean, don't we need some sort of international agreement to to really have any effect against these people? Of course. (laughs) And And do we have it? Do we have them?
3: Well, this is. And there's also the 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 Arab Arab and the African kleptocrats in Paris. We need to, to, to get those too.
2: Of course, but you know, um, history works in very strange ways. So let me give you an example. Uh, many people in civil society in Washington DC who've been campaigning against corruption, and there are quite a lot of us in DC who have been trying very hard to do this over many years, uh, were, were delighted a year ago that at least The Biden administration was willing to listen to arguments about a global pact to curb corruption that could be truly enforced, that could be really meaningful. Last summer, the White House issued its first national security memorandum, and it was on the subject of corruption. Last December, President uh, Biden hosted a virtual White House summit on democracy, And one, and the key, two key pillars on that summit agenda were anti-corruption and human rights. A hundred countries were invited and they have been asked to make pledges of actions they will take in the course of 2022 so that at the next summit for democracy in December of this year, there will be a true full catalog of coordinated actions. Now, I can't tell you whether it'll be just good rhetoric. I've been in this game so long that I'm not totally, you know, overwhelmed by all the good speeches. Mm-hmm. I want to actually see the action. Mm. But the Ukraine crisis has unified uh, Western nations in a way that clearly was not foreseen only a few years ago. And one of those unifying things has been concern about corruption it has led to all these sanctions and i hope uh, within the framework of this summit for democracy system that has been launched it will lead to true longer term international actions to on particularly on enforcement so there is some hope
3: mm. and, and, and our, can i oh, sorry go ahead. No, go ahead. can i can i ask mr Well, thank you mike what can we as as global citizens do
2: I think, uh, to be very crude about it, Mm -hmm. I think we have to do everything we can, and Senator Brown, you you would know so much about this. We have to get a broader consensus in Congress around the issues that are necessary to create global leadership in the anti-corruption fight. Now, it was bipartisan support uh, that led... To the passing of this so this bill last year, <clears throat> sorry, called the Corporate Transparency Act, to di- to disclose and re- and reveal the true ownership of holding companies in this country that I mentioned earlier. We need the public everywhere to write to congressmen and say we can no longer tolerate this kind of corruption. We want to see far greater enforcement. We want to see legislation that puts anybody who aids and abets these these corrupt officials in prison, or at least a law that enables them to be criminally prosecuted. Uh, I don't think that's an unreasonable request, and I think it's very practical. Um, and I I've, I've ground it down to Congress because Congress has the power to do these things, senators. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. I would think that they do, but I my question to you, Mr. Vogel, is who would proffer this legislation? Are you, since you are the head of these two nonprofits, or the head of one nonprofit and, and involved in another? Are you the kind of people that would write this legislation and then you know put pressure on uh, uh, senators from uh, different states to introduce it? Uh, well, I mean, or, or, or do we have to rely on them to to come up yes, with solutions Yes, but you know so. that's
2: that's already underway. Uh, Senator Cardin, yeah. for example, has been a real leader in in uh, in, in the Senate in trying mm-hmm. to promote anti-corruption legislation. There is in the House a uh, a U.S. Helsinki Commission office. Um, which has been working with uh, a number of members of the House from the from both parties, which a few months ago created a so-called kleptocracy caucus, and this <laughs> Hel- Hel- thinking commission group is trying to write the legislation. There are other people who are good friends of mine in Washington, in other organisations, for example, Transparency International, which is. A group I helped to create 30 years ago, and we now operate in 100 countries to try and fight corruption. The U.S. director of our Transparency International office is working very, very hard on the details of proposed legislation, with many uh, out, with a great deal of outreach to members of Congress uh, in this regard and to the administration. So there are people hard at work today trying to formulate the bills and working with, um, I would say, very enlightened members of the House and the Senate to try to push this forward. You know, until the Ukraine inv- uh, invasion by Russia, I, I was very skeptical whether we would get enough support for these kinds of new, new laws, even if the Biden administration supports them. Uh, I think the Ukraine invasion has changed that. I think people are so outraged about what Russia is doing that it may do that. I think we've got a harder task convincing the European Union and the UK to go as far as we will go. And uh, uh, as was said earlier in our conversation, we need them fully on board. This has to be a fully international, internationally coordinated approach.
1: Yeah. Do we need an international summit? I'm kleptocrats. Should we, well, should we convene a summit that brings us together to discuss this? Well, I think that was the That's idea. A great idea. Of, that
2: was the idea of the Biden Democracy Summit in December. Uh, um, uh, Senator Whitehouse uh, was one of the big proponents of that. Uh, Sheldon Whitehouse in arguing that our democracy is at stake here. Our security is at stake here. This isn't just a question of, you know, financial criminality. It's much deeper than that. And I think White House was quite su- supportive there. But, you know, um, if I may digress for one second, I came to Washington as a journalist in, my, in early 1974. I was a foreign correspondent for a British newspaper, and the big story at the time was Watergate. and. The legacy of Watergate, uh, directly thereafter, were investigations on the Hill of multinational U.S. companies that were paying bribes to foreign government officials: Gulf Oil, Lockheed, Exxon, you name it. And in 1978, Jimmy Carter signed the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which pro- which said it was illegal to bribe a foreign government official. It took 20 years before European countries agreed to pass a similar act. I don't think it's going to take 20 years now but, uh, for Europe to follow the U.S., but we are going to have a very big diplomatic fight on our hands to convince the Europeans to be as tough on corruption as I hope the Biden administration and the Congress will be, and it is absolutely essential if we are going to get hold
1: of this. Incredible danger to our democracy. Well, it's incredible to me that you need to pass a law that says it's illegal to bribe foreign government officials. You would assume that that's that's something we should all know, right? That that yes, that you but you know, eat, uh, uh,
2: but, but but Lockheed, the old Lockheed uh, aircraft company, brazenly bribed the prime minister of Japan. And when I, as a journalist, back in, I don't know, 1975, asked uh, Dan Houghton, the then chairman of Lockheed, about it, he said, well, everybody does it. In international competition, this is what you have to do. And anyhow, fortunately, wisdom prevailed. The Foreign Corrupt Practices Act was passed. But only a couple of years ago, the president of the United States at the time, said we should get rid of this law because it's unfair to U.S. business. <laughs> mm, you, you, could imagine who, you could imagine who that president was. So mm, absolutely. The, the point I'm trying to make is we need global, uh, you, you know, the point that you asked me earlier. Yes, indeed, we need global cooperation and we need it on a scale that is sufficient to make the oligarchs of this world understand the game is up to make the bankers and the lawyers and the auditors uh, and real estate people on Wall Street understand that aiding and abetting these corrupt people is against the public interest. Um, and, uh, And we've got to get tough, and it's going to be very difficult, because as you know so well, the political efforts by these interest groups, these business groups, to counter any tough regulation and enforcement are formidable
1: yeah absolutely and and money is a big as you've already pointed out a major problem in our political system one that we wrangle with now with you know ideas like matching funds and public finance and and other things but we still haven't resolved that marilia we're almost out of time i'm gonna let you ask the last question if you've got one
3: Well, I was just going to say, I wish you would talk more, Mr. Vogel. Um, We should cede our entire time to you, but I just admire your tenacity and your persistence over these years, because I can imagine just getting frustrated and throwing in the towel because nothing gets done. And here we are in 2022, facing the same thing in, in spades. And so what I think, you, what you've done is fantastic, and it's it's wonderful that you are have written this book. And it's so timely, sadly, with this Ukrainian invasion that is is bringing it to the forefront. So, I really appreciate what you've done. Is really what I like to say.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you. I I I if I may just thirty seconds. Yes, yeah, please. The the book. Um, I hope people you know read the book to understand how the system mm. works, but. You know, you thank me, and I'm going to not be falsely modest in saying this. Transparency International, which is the group I'm involved with, operates in 100 countries. In Russia, in Ukraine, in many other countries, we have unbelievably brave individuals who are standing up uh, to authority to demand an end to corruption. You can imagine the hardships that my colleagues in Transparency International Ukraine have today. These people are enormously courageous. So it's a privilege for me to be able to work with them. They're the people on the front line. They're risking their lives uh, in the anti-corruption pursuit because they understand that a civilized world demands accountability and transparency in government. So I thank you so much for this opportunity to, to spend some time with both of you.
1: Yeah, we yeah, thank we, you. Yeah, we thank you. And let me ask you: How do we support these people? Is there a website you want to give uh, our listeners, or some place they can go to get more information? I, I, I think uh, I would rather not
2: recommend a particular one. I think people can quite easily now fi- do their own research and find how best to support support people in Ukraine in particular. Um, I think yeah. there are so many sites and. Uh, uh, I, I don't have the inside information to know which is best, um, but I think it's a wonderful idea to be supportive. Not mm. only well, the, people the Financial in Times has a page uh, on that. Oh, good. I mean, it's not only the people in Ukraine, but of course, it's also the refugees from Ukraine
1: uh, yes. who
2: need such support as well at this time.
1: Mm. Well, with that, we're going to leave it, and we're going to. Uh, we'll see you next week. Uh, folks thank you so much Mr. Vogel you were a great guest i hope you'll come back sometime as we uh, start to clamp down on, on kleptocrats uh, hopefully uh we're going to dedicate the, our, our song as we leave to you and i would say to all americans uh pray for ukraine amen thank you thank you so
3: much let's
1: thank you for Mr. Ukraine. Vogel Thank you. See you next week.
3: Thank you.
0: Give the people their, right to, vote. People, give the people their p- right to vote, give the people their right to vote, <inaudible> give the people their right to vote.